So many of us drive cars. Some of you are aspiring to do that soon, but most of us drive cars. And uh, you might think back to when you began to learn how to drive a car, okay? There were so many things to keep track of. One was the gas pedal, right? You kind of learned, okay, I have to accelerate that one, the brake pedal, kind of get a handle on that. Then there was the rear view mirror. But there's one piece that I just want to bring our attention to as we learn how to drive another part of the car called the side mirror, okay? Now the side mirror is an interesting one. Um, what do we use the side mirror to do? What? See your blind spots, switch lanes, right? Now, I'm curious, with these side mirrors, you know when they first built cars, they didn't have them because there's only two lanes on a road. But as we got more and more lanes, we had to keep track of who was on our sides. Now, what's interesting is, does anyone remember that there's a phrase that's actually engrafted on all, engraved on all side mirrors? Anybody remember what that phrase is? You put up the slide? <laughs> yeah, there it is. Objects in the mirror are closer than they appear, okay? And why is that? This is because side mirrors are designed to give us a wider field of view, but results in objects we see appearing smaller than they actually are. This warning phrase helps us to make decisions as we drive to avert getting into trouble and leverage understanding as we maneuver cars in safe ways. But we don't just make decisions about driving in life, right? We actually make decisions about our lives. We encounter difficult people, challenging circumstances on every side of us. And we make decisions every day on what we're gonna do when we encounter them. Like the phrase engraved on the side of the mirror about how objects are closer than we think, what we wanna to do today in our passage is look at some phrases in there that are gonna remind us that Jesus is actually closer than we think. And he is right there with us to help us navigate these decisions in our lives. Specifically, because he's so close to us, he helps us make decisions, take actions that are helpful for ourselves and for those in our lives. However, as many of us know, when you don't use your mirror, what sometimes happens? Hard things, right? And the same thing is we don't see how close Jesus is and leverage him. We make decisions and do things in our weaknesses when we face trials and temptations that are helpful to ourselves and others. So what we want to do is remind us that Jesus is closer than we think today. We're going to learn how much Jesus understands us, how he supports us through our difficulties and our challenges, and how he has empathy, mercy, and grace for us that we need so much. He gives us wisdom and strength to make decisions as we navigate this life. Now, we're in the midst of a sermon series Pastor Brian talked about through the book of Hebrews, where Pastor Brian has been showing us through God's word how Jesus is better. I'm going to even go as far as to say not only Jesus is better, Jesus is best. Right? So we learned... The last time Pastor Brian was up here in chapter 4, how Jesus is best at what? He's best at giving us rest. And there's a rest that God has for us and he intends for us to have in our lives. There's a peace in our hearts. In Hebrews chapter 3, Pastor Brian taught us how Jesus is best at carrying us through life by learning about a sustaining faith that will keep us to the end. And that's what we all want. And how do we do that? We do that by thinking about him, by checking our hearts daily and leaning into the community that he talked about earlier. In chapter 2, Pastor Brian taught us how we, Jesus became a man who blazed the path to glory to free us from death and understand our pain. And we're going to talk a little bit about that understanding a little more today. That came from chapter 2, and we're going to see here again at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, Pastor Brian taught us how Jesus is God's ultimate word, superior in every way, and how his salvation is just too great for anybody to ignore. You just can't keep your eyes off it. So today we're going to delve into the rest of chapter 4 and the beginning parts of chapter 5 and see how Jesus is best at understanding us and learning how he supports us through our difficulties and challenges with empathy, 
mercy, and grace. So turn with me in your Bible or your Bible app to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14, and I'm going to be reading through, the end, through chapter 5, verse 10. It'll be up on the screen if you want to follow along. Now, we're going to walk through these verses together and then see what the, God intends for us to understand about those verses and then see how we apply them to our lives. Starting in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us, approach God's let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to, us, to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant or going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So let's start with verse 14, with the word therefore. When the word therefore, as Pastor Brian explained to us, it helps us to look back. So it's almost like a pause to say, okay, what have you learned so far? What have we learned so far? And what do we wanna, how do we want to apply that? When we look back, we see how Jesus became like us in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. We saw that in chapter 2. We saw that a little bit in chapter 3. We see how Jesus doesn't merely emotionally identify with us, but he physically identified with us too. He lived in a human body. And Jesus doesn't choose to sympathize with us from afar, but he chose to experience what it meant to be a person just like you and I. He came inside a body and lived the human life. So let's continue in verse 14, and we are encouraged here to hold firm to the faith we possess. Now what does hold firm here mean? What, are they, what is they trying to get across? The idea is to hold on to something very carefully and faithfully, almost like a clinging to something tenaciously. Now, the idea that, that Jesus is trying to get, the author is trying to get across here is the one I could help you remember is back to the car thing. When we were young, okay, we had parents, and when we decided to cross the road, what did they encourage us to do? And how did they want us to hold their hand? Tightly, right? Like, hold on, like, okay. Now, why? Why did we tell our kids to do this? Okay? Well, the reality is at that point in time, right, they don't take notice of things the way we do, such as people, bikes, cars. They're still learning to work out the sounds that are coming and what those sounds are. They don't have a sense of how quickly something comes on them. It's the same way here. Jesus wants us to cling to him, and he's the one who's going to direct us through because he knows so much more about what's happening in our lives, around our lives, and the things that we go through. So he desires us to hold on to him. And if, in fact, in Hebrews 10, 23, we're going to get the same instructions. It's going to say, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because he who promised 
is faithful. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 6.12. He says, fight the good fight. Take hold. Cling on to this eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So verse 14 is also giving us a little more reason of why we can hold on for him. And that's because we have this great high priest who ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Pastor Brian shared with us how Jesus freed us from death and blazed that path to glory. Now moving forward to verse 15, we learn about Jesus as the high priest. And now he's described, this is one of the things I really appreciate, about this, this idea of empathy. He's able to empathize with our weaknesses. Pastor Brian brought this up in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, and here in 15 we expand on it. And we can see how Jesus is able to relate to us. And there's a phrase here I want to tease out. It says, just as we are. He understands us just as we are. Now, just as we are, back to cars. It's not one of those things. You ever buy a car? What happens when you buy a car, whether you're new or used? What do you do when you drive around? You see everyone else has the same car, right? So when we talk about just as we are, or just as you are, that's not what he's talking about here. And it's not the same when you show up to school or you show up to somewhere else like a dance and somebody has the same dress or the same shirt as you. That's not what we're talking about just as we are. What we're, just as we are here means there's a resemblance or a likeness, but it's something that creates a closeness or understanding. It's something who's, somebody who's gone through the same experiences you have, and they understand. We often use the phrase, you get it. You get it. Now, Jesus, what's amazing about him here is that when you talk about this, this is this inner sense of understanding of what it means to be you and me. Jesus suffered and was tempted like we are, and he understands what that feels like to have that pressure on us. But what's different is, is that Jesus, he never fell into that temptation or gave in. So for us, what happens is for those of us who've given in to temptation, we, we resist only so far. For me, let's just say, I don't know, I'll use a silly example just for the time being. So let's just say I, I know I shouldn't really do something, but then I find out that it's free and easy and that really entices me even further. Then I give in, okay? I'm done, I'm over. Jesus, it doesn't matter what it is, he's held on longer and longer and longer than I've ever experienced. So whatever I'm going to face in those temptations of life, those things that are going to distract me or, or pull me away or have things that do things that aren't helpful to me or my others, what's happening is, is that he's held on even longer than I've ever will. So he understands whatever length I'm going to go to resist that temptation, he's gone all the way to the end. He can help us because he understands. He's the only person who's never yielded to it, and the only person who knows what the full extent of it means. As a result, he can help me and help us as these difficulties and challenges we face. He reminds us that we're not alone and that he understands us best. Also in verse 15, he was described as someone who has been tempted in every way just as we are, but he points out that it was, he didn't sin. So what I want to encourage you this week, some of you want to go deeper in this concept I would recommend that you go back and look at those encounters that Jesus had that were most intense when he faced temptation. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, you can see how he had this intense encounters. He was tempted in vain, and then at the Garden of Gethsemane, how he just wanted to give up. It describes Jesus as the one who did not sin when being tempted, and it encompasses the things that Jesus thought, the things that he said, the things that he did, or the things that he didn't do that he knew were wrong. He allowed his thoughts and feelings to be channeled by God. His words were controlled by God. His actions were commanded by God. 
He was the example for us on how to live. So since we have this great high priest who understands us so well and is an example for us, what does this mean for us? In verse 16, we continue to see how we're encouraged to let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Jesus is described as the one who gives us confidence to approach God. But the ability to approach God isn't because of anything we've done. It's because of what he's done for us. This undoubting confidence is because we have a right relationship with God as a result of him, not because of us. And maybe that's something that seems foreign to you today, a little strange, like, wait, I thought with God I'm supposed to do good things and he's supposed to accept me for the things that I do. And maybe you've heard about Jesus and you think, okay, there is this cross thing that he did and dying, but how does that relate to all these things that I've thought, said, and done that are just, I know I'm ashamed about? We want you to understand that today you would understand that what Jesus did is what matters in in making you right with God. May today be the day that you understand that and start to live a life where you follow him. Now, for those of us who are following Jesus, may today be the day that we can have greater confidence to approach God because we understand better the basis on which we can do so. That is the the sacrifice Jesus made. We're going to look at, do communion together later, and it's going to give us a moment to really think through that. So this confidence, what does this confidence mean when we say we can be confident to approach God? Okay? Think of it as being free and fearless. That's really what's encompassed here. It's almost a cheerful courage. Somebody who's just excited to go and approach somebody. But what's interesting is when we approach God with confidence, what are the two things that we're looking to do that when we approach him? I love how it points out we receive mercy and we find grace. And I don't know about you, but in my conversations with God, I'm usually feeling one or the other. I'm, I'm asking for most of the time even both. So let me explain what receiving mercy means. It's a readiness to get help for us from God in times of trouble. A week doesn't go by when I'm not in some sort of trouble. I need mercy because really what happens is when you're in trouble, how do you feel? Miserable, right? You feel miserable about something that either most likely happened to you. And so this sense of receiving mercy is, God, Lord, have mercy on me. Help this situation that I've encountered become less burdensome in my life. I can't take it anymore. And then grace. What is finding grace? Grace is getting kindness from God when we don't deserve it. Grace is oftentimes comes when I feel guilty about something I caused to happen, either in my own life or lives of others. And I pray, God, please have grace on me. And then I, I, I usually follow, please have mercy on them, right? Help the effects of the things that I've thought, said, and done not be as hurtful. Please take away this hurt that I have in my heart Please take away the hurt that I've caused in others' lives. So when we come to God and pray every day, usually there's something hard that's happening to us, or there's some things that we've thought, said, and done that are causing hurt in our own lives or others. So as we become more aware of those things, then we can receive mercy and find grace in what he refers to as during our time of need. Now, I love this little phrase, time of need. It refers to a very opportune time. So do you ever feel like there's things in life that just happen just at the right time? right? Just when we need it. We have something that's urgent and pressing in our lives. We get to this sense of almost desperation, and then boom, something shows up. Like, that's awesome. And this is the way we're meant to feel when we come and approach him with confidence and find that mercy and grace to address that need that we're experiencing at that time. 
That's what he talks about with approaching the throne of, with confidence. Let's continue on chapter 5. Now, these verses in chapter 5, um, we're actually going to, they're a little bit of a foreshadow to chapter 7. So there's some things that Pastor Brian's going to unpack in a few weeks out on chapter 7. But I just want to highlight a few things that we see here. Because chapter 5, we continue with this idea that Jesus is better, or I'm going to say the best. And here we're going to see how Jesus is the best high priest. And we're just going to say, okay, if you wanted to say, what's, the, what's somebody the, the greatest of all time? We talk about goats, right? The greatest of all time. Well, the greatest of all time, how do you measure the greatest of all time in something? So here we're going to look at what's the greatest of all time high priest, and how do we measure that according to... They really came from Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest, and he had some criteria. We're going to see how Jesus fulfilled it all. So in in chapter 5, verse 1, we see how the high priest had to be a person who came from the people. And Jesus was born, as we know, in a manger. We see in verses 2 and 3 how the high priest had to be compassionate and deal gently with people. And that was what Jesus was. We see in verses 4 through 6 how the high priest had to be somebody chosen by God. And we heard earlier in our verses how That is what Jesus did. He was the son that God appointed. And in verses 7 and 8, we see how the high priest had to be someone who learned through suffering. And if there's ever a person in this world who suffered more than anybody else, it was Jesus Christ. So he's the greatest of all time. Greatest of all time, high priest. So what I want to do is I just want to focus our attention a little bit on verse 2. Because it ties back to some of the ideas we saw in those verses in chapter 4. Where we see Jesus as our great high priest who's able to empathize with us. And verse 2 highlights how Jesus experienced weakness like us as a result was able to identify. He was an effective, any effective mediator, which is really what the high priest is, truly has to understand the conditions of the people that they represent. And Jesus understands us as we talked earlier. Now when it talks about Jesus dealing with us gently here and empathizing with us, it's not something where he's not aware of what we've done. It's just a matter of his reaction is not at a certain level. So do you ever run into somebody, you've done something that's offensive or, or hurt them, and, and then their level of reaction is just over the top? I know I've, I've done that myself, um, and I've also had that ha- done to me. And what happens here is this, that Jesus is always dealing with us with a certain level of emotional restraint. He's gentle. And it's not that he's indifferent towards our sins, He's just not too harsh. And why is that? It's his gentleness that leads us to what? Repentance. He wants to restore that relationship he has with us. And if somebody's gentle with you, don't you respond a lot better? I know I do. And so Jesus knows from personal experience how prone we are to fall short, but he also understands that when we do, he wants us to turn around quickly and return to him. Isn't that comforting? So before we get too far along, there are a couple verses here at the end, I'm not going to touch on, I mentioned about a guy named Melchizedek, whom Jesus was compared to. We're going to talk more about him in a couple weeks in chapter 7. For, for today, just know that he was this mysterious character in the Old Testament. He was a priest who made a brief appearance in Genesis, but he symbolizes Jesus. And Pastor Brian will unpack that in a few more weeks. So as as we looked at these verses together, how can we apply them to our lives? How does this change the way we go through life? I'd like to go back to verse 13 and start where it says, we're encouraged to hold firmly to the faith we possess. Pastor Brian helped us understand that there was Jewish Christians 
who this letter was written to. And there was a certain world in which they were living and things that they were experiencing. One of the things that these Jewish Christians were feeling is, is that they were tempted to return back to their old lives, their old patterns of living. And I think one of the reasons why we struggle to hold firm to our own faith is we have that same pull. Right? There's reasons that we struggle. And for them, they felt alone sometimes. They may have been the only followers of Jesus in their family. Their families, their friends may be pressure on them to not get so serious about this Jesus stuff and following him. They didn't understand why they were so into it and why they were so serious about it. Why, why couldn't they just tamp it down? And I'm sure at times they felt that they wished they could just be understood and that their family and friends would actually approve of them and appreciate them like they used to do before. Sometimes we feel that way, right? So how do we hold firm? How do we cling to Jesus? Well, it starts by seeing him more than just some sort of uncle you run into at holidays, weddings, and funerals. But seeing him as someone who's interested in your everyday life. Seeing him as somebody who wants to hear from you, to talk to you, to guide you, and direct you. Also, these Jewish Christians were also feeling that they started out following Jesus, but then once they did, they felt like they were missing out on some things that they used to experience before. Although their old lives are much different than ours, what is common between them and us is a sense of no, being, no longer being able to enjoy things that they had done before. And isn't that how it happens in our faith? We start following after Jesus. He gives us this sense of excitement and joy at the beginning, but as we begin to walk with him, there's things in our old life that seem quite enticing and interesting. But unfortunately, we, I talked about this feeling miserable, but what happens is we start to feel miserable because now that the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes and opened our hearts, when we try, when we give in to those temptations, it's just not as satisfying anymore. There's a sense of guilt. There's a sense of heaviness that we experience. And so we feel like we're missing out, but when we do experience and we can't experience it, we, and we just feel bad. So we're in this bind where we want to walk forward in our faith, but we get drawn back to those things. So how can we hold firm to Jesus and stand, strengthen our faith? Strengthening our faith really comes through coming to understanding of who we are and who God is. And the way that we do that is we spend time in his word and we spend time talking with him. Strengthening our faith happens by getting a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And that's what we're doing through this book of Hebrews. Let me continue applying so we've learned how to hold on to our faith more. How else can we apply these verses to our lives? I'm going to go back to verse 16. We're encouraged to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. This approaching God's throne is referring to how we communicate God, how we communicate with him through prayer. So I want to ask the question, why do we struggle to pray? And I think what we see here is, is that the reason why they're encouraged to approach with confidence is that they don't feel a need. If we look back in our lives and think about the times we prayed most, I want you to think back to the time you prayed most maybe in the past year. Most often, most fervently, with the most passion. I think as we look back, we're going to see those prayers were centered around some pressing need we had in our lives. Maybe it was a health issue, a broken relationship, 
a serious concern for a family or friend. Why are our prayers so intense at those times? It's because we feel a need. We feel a need for God to be alive and active and do something. So on the inverse side, when is it those times we've had the most prayerlessness in our lives? Usually because we don't feel so needy. We know God wants us to approach Him and connect with Him regularly, but we don't. Got some sort of disaster relief fund. You know, some sort of 911 call. Rather than a source of power and strength I need every day to get through my day. I need to have regular touch points with him throughout the day to stay connected with him so he can give me the wisdom and strength I need to live. Also, as we struggle to pray, I think it really comes down to, particularly in our culture, the ability to think that we got it, we got it under control. We got it covered. I just want you to think for a second. When, when somebody asks you the question, how are you doing? I, what, what are some of our canned answers to that? How are you doing? Fine. Fine. Okay. Managing. Getting by. Right? Um, getting by with a little help from my friends. I'm okay. Right? The reality is, is that public we need to have a public perception that we don't have needs. And prayer is predicated on the fact that we do. Now, I'm not asking us to walk around and be TMI with each other, okay? That, that's not really, maybe in your small group, maybe with a special friend here at church, okay? We don't need to wear everything on our sleeves, as they say. But the main thing is, who understands you best from this passage? Jesus. Who needs to understand that you don't have it under control, that you're not managing, that you're not getting by, that you can't make it work on your own? Jesus. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. So when we think about this life of self-sufficiency that we experience, it's very different than that daily, close relationship who this Heavenly Father is ready, willing, and able to provide us with that mercy and that grace that we need every day. So we do it by talking and listening more to Him. In my life, it really happens in moments, and obviously we each have different, I like to have Max prayed earlier, our weeks look different, right? But, but in my life, you know, you find those slices of time by yourself, and whether it's driving somewhere, wake up in the morning, while you're laying in bed, whether it's whatever it is, when you have a period of time and you set that time aside to communicate with him and tell him you need him, tell him you need his help, tell him you need his mercy, tell him you need his grace. That's what it looks like in my life. Now, in addition to holding firm to our faith and approaching God more often with confidence, more often and with confidence, how else can we apply these verses to our lives? The last one I bring one of our attention to is verse 2 in chapter 5, when we talk about Jesus who is able to deal gently with us. And I'm going to surmise that both the Christians back then and, and us even today, if I asked you to describe Jesus, gentle is probably not going to be one of the first four or five adjectives that come to your mind. And here, when the author brings it out, he was trying to explain to them, in their contrast, God was definitely holy, separated, apart from us, and in a way to be honored and awed and revered. And I don't ever want to minimize that. But there's also a sense when, when we understand that God is gentle, it affects the way that we react and relate to him. Sometimes we feel that God is just waiting and watching to help us catch us falling, or failing to let us know that we are finally getting what we deserve. Too often we view God as that judge on a bench 
waiting to bring down condemnation on us rather than the advocate for us and our needs. So how can we see Jesus and God as the one who deals with us gently? Again, I don't want us to lose sight of the absolute holiness and majesty of God. We don't want to minimize or rationalize our own sin or uncleanness. But what we want to do is bring these two ideas together in a deeper appreciation of what Christ did for us on the cross. When we understand the cross, then we can understand why Jesus is gentle. And, and I would surmise, here's what happens. I think what happens is there's sometimes that we look at Jesus and we look at him almost in a carnival mirror. Do you ever see those carnival mirrors and you go up and you, you kind of stand in front of it? I think we have a slide here. And, you know, your, your head looks like this, right? Or your body looks like this. Or... So there's times that we don't see him clearly, okay? We lose sight of, of really what he is. We've grown up with these distorted images and understanding of who Jesus is and how he views us. And we need to spend time in God's Word and to see Him who He is. And to see ourselves, who we really are. And as we have that greater understanding, we won't see Jesus as this person who's ashamed of us because of the things that we've thought, said, and done, but rather someone who's seeking to redeem us and get into close relationship with us. Jesus wants to reconcile us back into a right relationship with Him. That's why he deals with us gently. As I close, I just want to bring attention back to those mirrors that we have on the side of our cars. We've learned now how Jesus is closer than we think and what that means for us. But I also want to just highlight that one other thing. Today, the mirrors have become much more advanced. This is a mirror from my car. It now has radar sensors that warn me with a visual indicator on the side if they detect a vehicle in my blind spot, as was mentioned earlier, and when I signal for a lane change, they alert me with a flashing indicator at a higher speed that's coming in a neighboring lane. So just as these side mirrors have kind of evolved with technology, I want us over these upcoming weeks as we study the rest of this book of Hebrews to gain deeper understanding and ability to understand who Jesus is. The more we can learn about Jesus, the more we can see how he helps us and supports us in our daily lives, just as these side mirrors give us guidance. But much more than a side mirror, it's more like the engine of the car. That's what Jesus is. He's at the wheel, whatever you know, phrase you want to use. I just want us to realize that not only does he help us avoid danger like these sensors do, but he directs our steps in our daily lives so we can experience inner peace that comes from being right with God and living right as well. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we want to thank you for being near to us. We want to thank you for helping us make decisions and take actions that honor you and are helpful to ourselves and others. Thank you, Jesus, that you understand and support us through our difficulties and challenges we face in our daily lives. We thank you for your empathy. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you how you, when you support us, you help us to hold firm to you. Lord, as a result of what you've done for us, you help us to approach you more often and with more confidence. And lastly, Lord, as a role, as our empathetic great high priest, you help us to see you as the one who deals gently with us. Help us to see how we need you every hour. In your name, amen.